Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today, we'll meet a filmmaker who's traveled to some of the most inhospitable places on the planet in the name of conservation. And in our Shark Bite, we'll learn how too much light can be bad for the ocean. G'day and welcome to Shark Week, the podcast. I'm your host, Luke Tipple. Now, everyone, this is our last episode of the season, so make sure you hit that subscribe button so you get notified when new episodes come out. The mission of this podcast isn't just to understand sharks. I mean, we're definitely here for them. This is Shark Week, the podcast. It's our favorite animal. But what we're really here to do is to understand the ocean. On top of that, we want to celebrate and platform the people who've made it their life's goal to protect the ocean, to protect sharks, and help us all understand it a little bit better. My guest today is a perfect example of one of those people. His name is Sean Heinrichs. Now, I'm sure you've seen his work before, like in Racing Extinction. He's an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker who's made it his life's mission to get out in the field and confront, personally confront, some of the worst environmental offenders. His worldview very much aligns with ours, that the best way to combat evil is to shine a light on it. He's here to talk about the state of sharks in the world, what dangers they face, and most importantly, what we can do to help them thrive. Sean, welcome to Shark Week, the podcast. I really appreciate you being here. Your work has been inspiring to me and many others for so many years, and I, I thank you for that. I wanted to bring you on in this last episode of this season because we've been discussing all season, you know, the issues that sharks are facing, the issues the ocean are facing. And when I thought about who could give us kind of a, a good summary of where we're at from somebody who's frequently in the field dealing with it firsthand, well, it's you. So where are we in terms of shark conservation and the current status in the oceans? It's an interesting question, and it really comes down to where in the trade or in the fisheries or in the supply chain you're looking at, because there has been a lot of great work done in the last two decades. Really, there has been. 
when I started on this work in the late 90s, the sort of the philosophy back then was the only good shark is a dead shark. And uh, they were the monsters of the deep. And the idea of even getting any programming whatsoever, any airtime with regard to shark conservation was a long shot. The only stories people wanted to run back in the late 90s were stories about shark attacks. And my work began by actually just picking up a camera and going out in the field and documenting what was still happening out there because there had been a sort of a surge in the, the stories about shark finning and shark fisheries in the late 80s, early 90s. And then that story kind of fell off because again, the, the media really wasn't interested in it. And I kept asking people as a sort of avid diver, you know, what's the status of sharks? I'd loved sharks since I was a kid. And all I could see was old reports and old content. So I decided, well, the most important thing is, is to show because it's hard to argue with an image. You know, if you can give a relay a story, but when you show what's happening, people can really start to gravitate to accepting there's an issue and work on it. And that journey took me you know, over two decades from South America, Southeast Asia, Africa, the Americas, you know, pretty much across the world, documenting in these fisheries, in these ports, in these, in these um, trading operations, some of the most horrific scenes you've ever seen in wildlife. I was in a port in Japan where on the factory floor, one day's catch 7,000 sharks, 6,500 blue sharks, 500 poor beagle sharks lying there dead. And then I watched as they systematically went through and cut the fins off every shark. And I was like, what are they going to do with the bodies? And they're like, well, there's no value in the meat. And they use it for fertilizer. I'm thinking about these incredible majestic predators and they're being used as fertilizer. And that it was a joke. The real target here was the fins, right? Because that was being used in Southeast Asia. So that, you know, that, that really started to expose to me that the scale of the problem was on an order of magnitude worse than anyone imagined. And then I went to Taiwan and I, I searched out these facilities and we found a facility where there were 10,000 fins drying in just a single day right out in front of us. And that was just, again, one day's worth of fin drying. And, you know, that's two prime, you know, two pectorals and one dorsal, you know, that's about 3,000 sharks worth sitting in just one facility. And when you consider like in Taiwan, they have 3,000 industrial longliners plying the oceans, probably wrapping around the oceans 50 times long line. If you cumulatively put their long line out there, you realize that the sharks didn't stand a chance. So that was, you know, that was in the mid 2000s and a lot has happened since then. And, you know, the work has to have happened on multiple levels. One is hitting the demand. So working with organizations like WildAid, really trying to bring down the demand for shark fin. And, you know, significant work done working with Yao Ming documenting you know, live sharks being finned and then putting those into PSAs that went to literally over a billion people served to help really knock down demand. And the way you could measure that was the price of fins started to really drop in the, in the sort of the 2000 teens, you know, 15, 16, 17, you started seeing a steady decline in the price of fins, which means demand's going down. Yeah. How much of that change do you think was because of the visual medium of exposing it to people? I think a significant amount, honestly. It's, it's when you show that image or that footage of something that's sort of unconscionable, I call it strong medicine in small doses. It's that gut punch that it's one thing to tell me that people are starving. It's another thing to witness a starving person. There's something about that that really hits home in a completely different way. So that for me was really profound. And to be able to present that imagery, undeniable imagery, the ones that the traders said weren't happening, oh, we're not finning live sharks and all that. And yeah, actually, 
50 million of them probably of that 100 million back then. No, showing it was a really big part of it. But also you needed to, you know, I look at the problem at three levels. You have ignorance, apathy, and greed. Ignorance, people just don't know about it. And that's where the awareness and the imagery comes in. Apathy is I know about it, but it's not my problem. And that's where you need to work on real solutions from a management standpoint. And then greed is just the traders. They want to make money. And that's where hard laws and penalties come in. So the work has happened. And one of the big groups for sharks has been CITES, Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species. And in the early 2000s, when we started working on getting sharks protected, it was a completely dead end. The Asian communities that were still very much vested in protecting their trade really stood up against it in, you know, particularly like Japan and said, no, this isn't going to happen. And they were good at buying off boats. So we had to change our entire philosophy. And what we started using was storytelling and imagery to bring home the plight of sharks. And what started with just a handful of sharks being protected started to gain momentum. And then we gained more and more. And then, you know, in one swoop last year at CITES, the biggest one ever, we got the entire Requiem class, all the oceanic sharks protected a lot of the reef sharks protected in a single class level protection, some 40 plus species, which had never happened before. Yeah. How much is that going to be honored, do you think? Or how much actual protection does that offer? Let's start there. Well, it's like a speed limit, right? If, if you're in a speed limit and no one enforces, it does nothing, right? But if you're in a school zone, there's always a cop there, it does a lot. So it creates the foundation for protection, but not the protection. The foundation then needs to be built on, and that's where penalties... Uh, things like DNA testing and customs and immigration, things like that have come in. And there's been some great work done on that. Huge seizures. And that has put a significant dent in the desirability to go target these animals because you're going to lose a lot of money on that shipment if it gets caught. So it's it's made a dent, a uh, significant dent. But there's final there's one final piece that has not really been addressed, which is the greatest threat to sharks, which is you still have all the industrial fisheries out there doing the same techniques. The long liners, the gill netters, and if someone doesn't know what a long line is, it's this line that extends sometimes 40, 50 miles and has thousands of hooks, baited hooks, and it catches what's ever in its path. And you have tens of thousands of vessels on the oceans that are doing this form of fishing. And sharks don't know that you're not meant to be caught anymore, right? They just bite the bait. So whether or not you're able to sell it, they still want to keep the hook. So what happens when they bring the shark up? They chop it in the head and throw it back in the water. So the, the loss of sharks due to these really unsustainable forms of fisheries is still horrific. And so we're still losing the fight right now. We're doing great work, but we're still not getting ahead of it. What are the more real-time updated numbers that we should be citing? I mean, you've got your finger pretty well on the pulse of sort of worldwide statistics. And there was those numbers being bandied around as, you know, 100 million sharks a year or 70 million sharks a year or 50 million, whatever it is. How can, we, how can we put a number to that and how can we say whether it's unsustainable or sustainable? Well, the last study that was done was about, I think, seven years ago, which built on the prior study, which was about seven years before then. And the prior study said 70 to 100. And then the, the latest study that was done again back then was 100 to 270 million. So when you look at the, the fins in the trade and you look at the volume going through these markets and you start adding them up, the numbers were looking way bigger than they previously estimated. And the question is, how can the ocean sustain that? Well, it's a huge ocean and these vessels use advanced technology using satellites and all that to track the food that the sharks target. 
and they're collecting all the data from other fishermen when they're finding the sharks. And so really what we're doing is scooping up the last ones. The estimates 10 years ago is that we had depleted 90% of the great predators from the oceans 10 years ago. So where are we now? We're probably at a few percentage points. I think that numbers like that are just so extraordinarily large that there's uh, a level of apathy, as you say, with you know the consumers and people who listen to it. It's kind of like it's it's so big that they're like, well, whatever. Like, I don't know what to do about it. But there's also a bit of uh, incredulousness, you know, especially with fishermen, especially with like local people who are looking at a local population saying, ah, we're not doing anything to all these guys are doing the worst of the worst. I'm not doing anything bad, which may be true in some cases. But as somebody who's actually been there and seen the volume that can come out, paint us a picture of what that's like, what it puts you through. Like, how can we believe these numbers? Yeah, well, you pull into a port in, in one of these remote countries that have significant shark fisheries, and you see dozens upon dozens in, in Taiwan, hundreds of these fisheries vessels, commercial industrial fisheries vessels rammed into these ports. And then you sit there and you just watch vessel after vessel pull up and unload massive quantities of bags of fins or tons of sharks. And you, you're, you realize you're there just for a morning, right? And you're watching tens of thousands of animals exchange hands, tens of thousands of sharks, right? In a single port. Now, if you add up all the ports around the world that are pretty much every country with a coastline has been targeting sharks for the last few decades, that's a lot of countries targeting sharks. And so when you see the thousands and thousands and thousands of these corpses of these fins steaming on the cold factory floor in the morning in just one location, you start to realize like, well, yeah, just do the math, right? If, this, if there's, let's say there's 10,000 here, right? Well, all you need is 100 ports and there's a million sharks in that one day. Well, 100 days of fishing, there's your 100 million. It doesn't, it adds up really quickly when you're working with those kinds of numbers. Sure. Have you been in peril in putting this imagery out there? Like, yeah. I mean, you're dealing with large organizations who, and there's so much money involved and you're out there poking the bear saying you can't do this anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, you're talking about the illegal wildlife and the illicit wildlife trade. Yeah. These are the guys that are moving rhino horn and ivory. I mean, I've been the traders. They're moving all of it. And uh, a lot of those folks are either illegal or right on the edge of illegal. So you're talking about mafia and triads. And they know how to protect their business. And their first default is to remove somebody who's exposing what they're doing. And so, yeah, I've been shot at. I've been chased by machetes. I've had machetes at my throat. I've had my life threatened. I've had hit orders on me by militaries in remote countries. I've had to hide out in mangroves overnight. I've had to flee countries. In the time that I've done this work, yeah, it's gotten hairy at times. I, I kind of at a certain point, I realized that I wasn't going to make it if I was going at the level of intensity. I was doing like a project every month at one point. And unlike US Special Forces, I didn't have a satellite 911. <laughs> if it went sideways, it was me, right? That was all we had, or or my buddy Paul, who I did a lot of this stuff with. Like, there was nobody else. There was no rescue. There was no helicopter coming in. So yeah, it gets scary, and these people will go to great lengths, including using governments, who are certain governments are very complicit in this, to enforce their will to protect their their business. Yeah. How do you go about hearing about a hit that's out on you? Is it a piece of information you're like, okay, cool, I'm packing up and getting out of here, and then it's done, or is this something that persists? 
um, you you get lucky and you have a good network of fixers. Because yeah, the times I did find out it, it was not that it was announced. It was someone said, by the way, this I just overheard in this facility and you need to get low and get out fast. Right. Now, is there, is there a retribution or some course of like action you can take to get rid of that? Or is it just time makes that go away and they're focusing on the next guy with the camera who's trying to expose them? The nice thing about corrupt networks is there's already some, always someone climbing, climbing the anthill to tear the person down and replace yeah. them. So you wait for that person to be removed. <laughs> so where are we these days with those organizations? Because it does seem, as you say, we're starting to make a dent that there is some change. But in, I know that this is kind of a how deep is a whole question, but in your analysis of what's going on, is it too little too late? Is there hope? Is, yeah, what direction is the ocean going in? Uh, the ocean in general is going very much the wrong direction. I mean, when you hear reports that the Atlantic countercurrent is coming to a stop because of the fresh water that's coming off the glaciers that are causing the entire upwelling to stop, which is the big pump that drives that entire Gulf Stream, and that may happen in the next decade. Um, many ice age in Northern Europe and heat waves in, in, in the Southern regions is something really to be worried about. You know, like that's happening when you see entire fisheries that had never gone and collapsed in the US, these the king crab and the snow crab that are meant to be the most sustainable fisheries. And then boom, they collapse overnight. You start realizing that what you've been told just isn't true. Even in these very MSC, Marine Stewardship Council certified fisheries, clearly that's not the case. So as and the big picture is really scary. And you know, I'd love to wave the big wand and say we, we did it, but we're not there at all. On a local or medium scale, there are some wonderful things happening. You know. The regional protected areas, you know, for example, Galapagos has been under massive threat for years. In the last decade, there's been significant advances in terms of protecting sacred sites like that. Is it perfect? No, there are days where it's still really sad there, but there's still a lot more better days than worse days. And there's, you know, marine protected areas in Southeast Asia, the establishment of a large corridor between Galapagos and Cocos, the expansion of Cocos. There's some regional things that are happening that present opportunities. And I've been to areas where there's protection. And when you start seeing shark populations rebound on a localized level, that's really inspiring. And for people who are like, well, what's the point on the big picture we're struggling? It's like, put yourself in the fins of one of those sharks. Every single one we save matters, right? Like it, it, if there were 10 people in a building and, and eight got burned, would we leave the other two because there's no point? No, we go and take Herculean efforts to save the last two because it's really important. So my philosophy is we need to take that approach and really show up, like really, really, really show up because putting our heads in the sand isn't going to make it go away. It is a difficult fight, but so was civil rights. So was ending slavery in the US. Those were huge uphill battles, but they happened and they were successful. So just because it's hard and just because the picture is bleak doesn't mean we quit. It means we should all redouble our efforts. And in doing so, we might see a very different outcome. Well, you say we really need to show up. What are the three things people could be doing today that would equate to really, really, really showing up, as you say? Well, everyone does three things. We all consume, we all dispose, and we all burn energy in the process. Yeah. So those are three areas in our lives that we can make a difference. On the consumption level, Become an intentional, conscious consumer. 
especially when it comes to seafood and meat products, be really smart about it because 40% of the fish that comes out of the ocean goes into animal feed. A lot of it goes into chicken feed. So even though you say, well, I don't eat fish, you're eating like industrial chicken, you're still eating fish, right? Pork, same deal. If you're um, eating large-scale commercially harvested seafood, those are being caught by the very vessels that are just destroying these populations of animals. If you're going to eat fish, get it from a sustainable source that's pole in line or something where the, you know exactly how the fish is caught. There's no bycatch and it's traceable. There's not a lot of those. It takes work, which means, again, the effort it takes to be informed and conscious. On the disposal side, you know, we're also filling the oceans with plastic. What is it? By 2040, there'll be more plastic than fish, right? Something tragic like that, yeah. If you go out there right now, it kind of already looks like that. So, you know, single serving plastic, get rid of it. Stop using it. Stop going for the convenience and start eating bulk. Start actually eating at home again. Stop using stuff for one minute and throwing it away. I go through the airport. It's shocking to see people go. They get plate of this straws, cups, bowls, they eat for five minutes and they dump it in the bin. Everyone doing that, there's no way that's sustainable. And then the energy consumption, it's just really about more efficient and less because the carbon, what's getting dumped in the oceans right now, the, car the oceans are on the brink of becoming a net emitter of carbon. And it's like one of the lungs of the earth. You know, the, the plains, the prairies, the forests are one lung, the oceans are the other one with phytoplankton. Well, when it gets too saturated, it starts off-gassing. Now you literally, not only have you lost a lung, but it's actually pushing carbon into the atmosphere. So really think about your flights, think about your home usage, think about all those things and try to really dial that back because it's in those scenarios where each and every one of us collectively make a huge impact. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, 
and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, you've been around a lot of people that do fairly nefarious things with potentially no conscience. And I, I remember a line from, it was Racing Extinction, I believe, where you said, uh, why would you want to disrupt something that took billions of years to evolve? In being around the people who make it their business to do that, what do you think motivates them? Is it straight greed or is it they're just ignorant of the ramifications? It's it's a complex cycle of scarcity. Okay. I've seen so many times people who have the most feel like they have the least. And it comes from this place inside of them where they're just not enough. So they just have to keep filling that not enoughness with stuff and power and possessions. And At be- what level is that happening? Is that a... Is that a comment on the people in charge or the people running the boats? I think it's a pan. I think it's a pandemic. I yeah. think we have an entire marketing engine in this world teaching us all that we're not enough unless we have the latest phone and the latest computer and the latest watch and the latest this. A bunch of people who feel not empty and turning us into ravenous consumers. And at the top of that pile are the kings of that, right? Billions is just not enough for them. They need more billions in order to feel enough. And the problem is that the more you stuff into that hole, the more the hole widens and the more that happens. So it really is massive cycle of scarcity, perceived scarcity. And what they do is they turn people and animals into objects. Because as soon as you objectify something, once you objectify something, you can do anything you want to it because it's no longer a sentient being. And they, the way they describe the sharks, you know, they call it, they call it product, right? And we call it cattle. We call everything, we give it another name so that we can objectify it. And I think that is the driver of all of this. If everybody really felt like they were enough inside and that their relationships nurtured them and that they were whole, they wouldn't need to go fill their lives with everything else. They just wouldn't need to do it. And the kings of that are the people running these complexes that often seek the power because that gives them more access. So you think it's overt consumerism versus the need to feed growing human population on the planet? Human population is certainly an issue, but I think WWF did a study about a decade ago, and it's, I think we're operating at about a 10% efficiency rate on our planet. We throw away 60% of our food that we put in the US. Like so much of the seafood food that is caught in the ocean, the fish get thrown away as bycatch, rot on shelves, lost in transport, or never even get consumed. You know, it just sits there in a freezer and gets disposed of. So we're, we're nowhere near as efficient as we could be because we'd rather take convenience. If, if we were operating at 100% efficiency or 90 or 80 or 70, and we solved this problem, then that would be the final finger for me, which is too many people. But if we reduced our consumption by, if we got, more te- got down to 100% efficiency, we'd be consuming one-tenth of the resources we are consuming today. And I think at one-tenth, we're well below the, the carrying capacity of this planet. I was just about to say, yeah, I mean, I have heard that carrying capacity has already been surpassed you know that yep. there are too many people but i guess that must be based on the the current level of consumerism or you know what they might be able to see we could dial it down to um yeah. that's obviously playing into your logic we need almost two planets to sustain us right now but we only have one coming back to the ocean side of things on a on a local level because i think Again, people look at these sort of global numbers, uh, the large numbers of sharks getting caught and say, oh, it's all the longliners. We've, on this show, spoken to several people who 
point out the, the local success of recovering species. Uh, you know, on the Atlantic seaboard here in the US, there has been some rebound. What do you think about the, the attitude towards sustainable shark fishing by, you know, small boats, you know, one shark yeah. per boat, that type of thing? What type of impact does that have realistically? The amount, well, let's say 70% of seafood in the US is mislabeled and we're the, we're the best, right? And shark goes into all kinds of products, right? So A, we have a massive traceability issue. There's less than 1% observer coverage on these fleets. So we're already catching way more and guarding way more than we have any clue about because we don't have the coverage on that. And see this idea about rebounding shark populations. Well, what's your time frame? Like realistically, you have little spikes that may come back up, but the net net has been a solid decline yeah. across the board. I think we started to tackle this a little while ago. We're looking at the NOAA numbers and they're, at least the data that they're publishing is saying, hey, over the last decade, basically, there's been a market recovery in certain species to where they're actually able to see a sustainable rate of catch and my problem with that is i don't think you've been measuring for long enough or Not that you're close. getting reported even close enough to to what's actually happening but that is used by you know local yeah. interests to say hey they're doing okay here we're going to go fish them out of this certain area they're catching all my fish so here's the deal with that too it's there's a data collection bias you have the number of boats on the water today reporting versus way before is way more, right? So just by definition, your probabilities of interactions go way up, right? So they're not dragging like a sonar through the water and counting all the sharks, right? They're reporting interactions, they're reporting people reporting data. And there's no way that you can use that as a viable measure. Because it's like saying I have 10 more, yeah, 10 times the number of spotters and I've seen more goats. There's more goats. No, you just have a lot more people in the water seeing it. You're getting a lot more interactions. It has nothing to do with the actual state. Also, sharks are migratory and they move around. So if you have a lot of fishing activity in an area, the sharks are going to come into that area. It says nothing about the baseline population. So let's say you have a restaurant in a town, the best restaurant. As that population in that cloud, let's say it's leaving, the restaurant, the best restaurant is always going to be full until there's no one left and then it's going to go, right? But if you look around, all the other restaurants are empty because people are no longer in line for the best restaurant, right? So it's like, we have a thing where if you're measuring in these areas, especially like off South Florida and stuff, right? If I'm a shark, there's so much stimulation down there from the fishing boats. Sport fishers are everywhere. I'm going to be coming into that area from around. I'm going to be spending time in that area. But it says nothing about the, the gross population. What we do know is there hasn't been a single example of a sustained shark fishery on the long term that has not shown some kind of precipitous decline. There's been short-term studies that claim it, and then they come back and wear all the sharks. Yeah. What about the, the smaller, what about the smaller species like gummy sharks that are, you know, relatively, uh, they exhibit high fecundity, you know, they, they tend to breed a lot quicker than these larger species. You know, they're, they're important, not, very important on a very smaller macro level, but I've consistently heard that there is sustainability within those industries for the smaller sharks. It depends on the smaller one. Like you look, spiny dogfish, which is one of the largest population, right? Well, they have they have a 24-month gestation cycle and they give birth to two pups. And they live for 60 years. Yet they've claimed MSC has certified several fisheries for them. And what they're not accounting for is recruitment from outside the area. In the ideal areas was where you're going to fish. 
as that population declines, more come in from around and around until there's nothing left to migrate into the city and suddenly it's a wasteland. There's no way that an animal that has a 24-month gestation, gives birth to two pups and lives 60 years, can be fished sustainably in any numbers. It just doesn't exist. One, number one. Number two, what we're doing to the ocean seafloor habitats through the various trawling and stuff is we're destroying the substrate, which means these smaller sharks, which are typically bottom-dwelling sharks, already their homes are being destroyed. So it's like saying, well, we're not fishing, hu we're fishing humans at a really low rate, yet we burned out all their homes. How long can we live without our homes? So the number of threats and assaults that are happening on these populations from all kinds of directions is simply not sustainable. And the final thing is they use the word harvest. You harvest corn, you harvest wheat, you harvest vegetables, you harvest things that you plant and that you grow yourself. These are wild animals that have really sensitive biological traits that make them very hard to sustain any type of impact. Yet we use the word harvest by Noah because it makes it sound acceptable. You're objectifying these animals because you harvest things that aren't sentient beings. So I refuse to indulge in language like that. No, you're hunting and slaughtering wild animals. And where else do you have on the land sustainable large-scale harvesting of wild animals? You have a deer hunting season, but you don't have vessels upon vessels of these fleets driving through the forest every single day shooting deer. There'd be none left, but we're doing that in the oceans and we call it harvesting. So we need to go back to realizing that wild animals are wildlife and they need to be managed using the cautionary principle, which is until you can prove you're doing no harm, you shouldn't be fishing them. So can Noah's data be trusted? I don't trust it. No. Based on what? Uh, speaking with observers that have been on these vessels for years, speaking to fishermen who say, yeah, but this business is going out for us, even though it's a research sustainable shark fishery. Looking at the amount of discard and bycatch and damage that is happening to these animals in the water that never go into the numbers. What do you think the motivation for Noah perpetuating a potentially non-sustainable harvest or hunting period would be? I think there's a huge misrepresentation issue, which is they're meant to represent the good of the people, their government agency, but they seem to represent the good of a, a certain industry, which is fisheries. So how can you, if you're, if you're constantly siding with industry, you aren't representing the good of the ecosystem, which supports three, several hundred million Americans, right? You're supporting a select few. So there is a, I think there is a huge bias and I think there is an alignment issue, which is you need to look at it from first from an ecosystem standpoint and not from how do we sustain a fishery. And you don't think that their focus is on the correct side of that equation is what you're saying? Well, the people who get the grants to do the research are funded by the same money coming out of the fisheries. So it's kind of like there's just a huge economic incentive to keep the door open. And there's no incentive to close the door. So how, how can that be fair? How can that be just? It does seem, it does seem like at the very minimum a conflict of interest. But uh, like we've said on, we've said here many times that the numbers just don't seem right, and it seems, it seems inequitable with the position of the rest of the planet. Like it's we can Highly point we can point a hundred miles offshore and say everything's terrible out there. It's all yes. it's you know outside of our waters. You know it's all burning down, but over here it's cool. Go for it.
How long did NOAA support the California Drift Gillnets? I wouldn't know. Give oh, us a number. Decades. Known yeah. to be absolutely wiping out cetaceans and whales and seals and sea lions, killing them indiscriminately, yet for a very small select few who held the permits, NOAA continued to stand up again and again and supported these where all kinds of third developing countries around the world had banned these drift gillnets. And here we have the United States that's meant to be a leader in sustainability, and we've had drift gillnets off those coasts, and we finally shut them down just a few years ago. But how do you trust data from that, you know? When you say just a few years ago, how long ago was that shut down? I think it was 2000, like 2020, 21. I'd have to look at the number. Oh, really? Like very recently. Wow. Yeah, like really recently, right? Like how do you trust if that's your philosophy with it, such a known, destructive, unconscionable thing that a lot of countries that have far less resources have banned like, and bottom trawling, you know? And then you have the crab pots that are killing the right whales that only a couple hundred left, right? Yet they refuse to remove them for a very select few. The, the good of the animals and the ecosystem are not at stake here. It is, there is a huge bias towards industry. I'm sure you've got some detractors out there. Like if somebody came up to you and said, where's your motivation? Your motivation is to go out and make you know, disaster porn movies that tell us all about you know, this tragic stuff that's happening and you're just trying to get another f film funded. I I'm sure you're confronted by people like that all the time. I'm certainly not one of them. But wh what is your motivation? I just have a fundamental belief that we're part of this system and if we're killing Mother Earth, we're killing ourselves. And I find that unconscionable. And I also believe that the, one of the things that we should not be doing is contributing to global suffering. And if you take the amount of animals and people that are in suffering today, I think that if you had a suffering index for the planet, it's probably the highest it's ever been. Not the Roman Wars, not the Crusades, those were spikes. But if you globally look at the amount of suffering that's happening across all species, it's at a level where I think we're all feeling this frenetic energy. We're all feeling the tension and the anxiety. Because the very biosphere that we are a part of is resonating with that suffering. So I think each and every one of us can contribute to reducing that suffering. We can show up, we can be compassionate people, we can do our work, and we can contribute something good, something that makes a difference. And for me, I would much prefer to have harmony and peace and spend time in nature and just going taking pretty pictures of animals, which I love to do. But at the same time, it's not the truth. It's not really what's happening. So I feel like it's our responsibility to bring that truth forward and preside solutions, ways that people can contribute to changing that. And in the end, you know, you know, there's a billion trillion stars in the universe. There's a lot of planets out there. I'm sure there's all kinds of crazy life forms out there, all having their own issues, right? So if this little planet snuffs in a moment in the grand scheme of the universe, we won't even blink. We're not even a star, right? You won't even see it. So it's not that big to the universe. But the energy we put out every single day, you send that light from a star, it travels millions of years and hits the earth, right? That's the energy that is constant, whether the star is there or not. So it's not as much what we accomplish here, it's how we show up and the way we show up that really is forever. It resonates through our, our children, through our society, and if you have kids, you do. Like, they start to resonate with that, and I think, and that goes out from our planet. So I think being good people, being people of high integrity, loving, compassionate people, and showing up for purpose puts that energy into our planet, puts it into our society, puts it into the universe, and that matters. It always matters. Yeah. Well, mate, uh, from somebody who 
really does appreciate your work and the energy that you put out there. And I say this with all sincerity, your work really has inspired me over the years. So I've, I've looked at it with great interest, not only for, you know, the beauty, like the pictures you have behind you right now, like that series was amazing. I think I was working with whale sharks actually at the time <laughs> when you put that out. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I have to spear one now with a tag, but I love the imagery. <laughs> but that's part no, of it. I, that's part of it. That's, that's science for you. I uh, got to do a little bit of destructive stuff to get the data. Yep. But um, look, I've, I've really appreciated throughout the years the, the energy and integrity you brought to your work and uh, your imagery, I think, really does have the ability to, to make significant change, if not maybe change the world. And I really do appreciate you for that. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. And thanks for getting the word out. You know, like people need to fall in love with these animals. We protect what we love, right? And it starts with that love. And so the more this programming makes people care about these animals, the more likely when that opportunity comes up to protect them, they're going to become passionate and take a stand for them. I agree. Mate, thank you for your time today. We'll chat to you again soon. All right. Take care. It's time for today's Shark Bite, where Sierra ends the show with something interesting from the ocean. What have you got for us today, Sierra? Yeah, so I think a lot of people know that light pollution is a problem on land. It has negative impacts on many different species of wildlife. But did you know that it's also a problem in the ocean? That's actually not something I knew about. Tell us about it. So the Plymouth Marine Laboratory published an atlas of artificial light at night under the sea. So what that means is they tried to figure out how much area of the ocean is impacted by artificial light. So that's light coming from, you know, our buildings, our wind farms, offshore oil and gas platforms, anything that's, you know, even like the LED lights, that's all considered artificial light and it has a negative impact on the marine life in the ocean. Okay. It makes a lot of sense close to shore. Uh, the offshore stuff is interesting to me, but um, what did they find? They found that at a depth of one meter, which is about three feet, the light pollution is strong enough to cause a biological response in 1.9 million square kilometers of the ocean which is an area roughly three times the size of Texas or the size of Mexico. Well, I've seen a lot of shore-based communities uh, like here in Florida where the lights on the boardwalk get turned off so that it doesn't affect the turtles. Is there other animals getting affected as well? Yeah, so there's actually this teeny tiny plankton called a copepod that migrate daily in the water column. And they do this migration based off their circadian rhythm. So it's all based on, you know, the sun rising and setting. And so when there's these artificial lights, it kind of messes up that rhythm. And the reason why they migrate is that they spend their nights foraging near the surface for food. Um, and then they migrate to deeper waters during the day so that they can hide from predators. So in these plankton, you know, we've mentioned it before, they're the base of all life on Earth. They're kind of the, you know, the building blocks at the bottom of the food pyramid. And so if they're cycles are getting you know messed up because of this additional artificial light that could have implications on you know the ecosystem structure of the ocean was there a recommendation of the paper to what we should do about it shut the lights off just shut the lights off <laughs> yep turn them off <laughs> well perhaps more actively this is something for our listeners to be armed with so they know that when they visit beachside communities who are being responsible with their light that they're not going to get upset when the boardwalk lights or the hotel lights aren't layering down on the beach so they can have their, you know, moonlit parties, right? Exactly. Okay, thanks, Sierra. Anytime. Okay, that's it for another episode of Shark Week, the podcast. Thank you for listening, and I do hope you learned something. And as I said at the top, this is our last episode for this season. 
So make sure you subscribe so you get notified when we have more episodes coming out. Until next time, I'm Luke Tipple. I'll chat to you soon. Shark Week, the podcast is produced by Dells Media for Warner Brothers Discovery. Luke Tipple is the executive producer and our writer and producer is Yale Rice. Our researcher and associate producer is Sierra Kehoe. For Warner Brothers Discovery, the executive producer is Dominique Zhu and the coordinating producer is Corinne Wilson. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review and subscribe to help our mission to give sharks a voice. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.